0: Welcome to the Animal Law Podcast. This is Marianne Sullivan. And this week, I will be talking once again with Professor Michael Dorf, And we will be unpacking, or he will be unpacking, <laughs> and I'll be watching him unpack the Supreme Court's recent decision in national pork producers versus Ross. And this is the case that everybody has been talking about, though some people clearly don't know what they're talking about. There are things about it that are a little confusing. And the court here... With a very fractured majority, and we'll talk about that, upheld California's Prop 12, and that is really good news. If you have listened to Professor Dorf's prior interview on the case, you already know that he is very capable of making seemingly incomprehensible topics, such as the Dormant Commerce Clause, much more comprehensible than you thought possible. I think you will find that this is what he does here, and we will also discuss whether this case is, in fact, a big deal for animals. Before we get to the interview, I just want to tell you about a few recent interviews on the Our Hen House podcast, which, of course, I co-host along with Jasmine Singer. Recent episodes include an interview, an amazing interview, with animator Rachel Larson, who is the best friend and assistant to the award-winning Nickelodeon star Tiny Chef. Also, journalist Spencer Roberts joined us to talk about his work uncovering the environmental and animal rights nightmares in the modern fishing industry and Alicia Centurio and Alexander Paul were on about their recent acquittal in the Foster Farms rescue case. If you are able, please consider supporting the Animal Law Podcast and the Our Hen House podcast by going to ourhenhouse.org donate. There you can join our flock for $10 a month or $100 a year, or you can make a one-time donation in any amount, and we would be so grateful if you did. Okay, let's get to the interview because I know you all want to start to understand this case a little better. And I promise you, an hour from now, you will. Michael Dorf is the Robert S. Stevens Professor of Law at Cornell Law School, where he teaches constitutional law, federal courts, and related subjects. He has authored or co-authored six books, including With Sherry Kolb, Beating Hearts, Abortion, and Animal Rights and over 100 scholarly articles and essays for law journals and peer-reviewed science and social science journals. His most recent work of scholarship co-authored with Sherry Kolb, If We Didn't Eat Them, They Wouldn't Exist, The not identity Problems Implications for Animals, Including Humans. That was published in the American Journal of Law and Equality. He also frequently writes for the general public in addition to occasional contributions to the New York Times, USA Today, CNN, the Los Angeles Times, and other wide circulation publications. Professor Dorf has been writing a biweekly column since 2000 and publishes a popular blog, Dorf on Law. He will be joining me right after this. The Brooks Animal Law Digest is a premier online free publication dedicated to offering in-depth and up-to-date coverage on today's most important animal law and policy issues. The United States Digest is published weekly as a collaborative effort with the Brooks McCormick Jr. Animal Law and Policy Program at Harvard Law School. The Canadian Digest is published twice monthly with the support of the University of Toronto Faculty of Law. This digest is a resource for anyone interested in learning more about the animal law field. Subscribing is like having a full-time lawyer researching and reporting to you on current legal developments related to animal protection. Features include updates by category and key terms, as well as links to background materials that will orient the reader into that specific issue. You can subscribe to the U.S. and Canadian Brooks Animal Law Digests at thebrooksinstitute.org. Welcome to the Animal Law Podcast, Michael.
1: Oh, thanks so much, Marianne. Glad to be back.
0: I am so excited to have you back because finally, finally, this case has been decided. And while you explained what the case was about the last time you were on the podcast, now you're going to explain what the decision is about because it's definitely not obvious to me. But before we get into the decision and all of that, can you just start once again, as you did with the last time we recorded, with a brief recap of what this case is about and what's Prop 12? What's the Dormant Commerce Clause? Also, who brought the case? And if people want more depth, they can go back to your other interview. But but let's just do a little recap as an introduction.
1: Sure. Uh, Prop 12 is a measure that California voters approved by referendum that limits the sale of animal products, eggs, pork, I believe, veal, based on how the animals that produced it and their mothers were treated. This particular case is a challenge by the pork industry to the implementation of Prop 12 with respect to pork products. Uh, There are other provisions that involve the other animals, but they weren't an issue in this case. And they said that the application of Prop 12 to pork products uh, was a violation of the Dormant Commerce Clause, that is to say, the prohibition on states regulating interstate commerce in ways that step on the toes of Congress, principally because nearly all of the pig meat sold in California comes from uh, piglets and pigs that are raised in other states. So the core claim of the pork industry was that California was regulating extraterritorially, that is to say outside of California itself. This claim was rejected by the lower courts, which said, well, this law applies to both California and non-California pork producers. It is therefore not discriminatory. And there's no general rule that says that a law that targets in-state sales can't have extraterritorial effects, even substantial ones. Uh, So that's where the case stood when the pork industry uh, and its allies took it to the U.S. Supreme Court, which heard argument last fall, and now we have a ruling affirming the Ninth Circuit decision, that is to say, ruling for California and against the pork industry. They cannot proceed with this lawsuit. The court held that the plaintiffs, that is to say the industry, had not stated a valid claim under the dormant commerce clause. We can get into the nuances. Yes, the the nuances
0: are the hard part. And one of the things that's hard about this case is that there are really a lot of decisions by all of the different judges. And I think we see a lot of confusion in the press about just figuring out who voted for what and why. I don't want to get lost in those weeds right at the outset. So I was thinking that maybe the best way to deal with that is to discuss the issues. And as we go, we'll we'll define who voted, which way and why. And does that does that more or less work for you? Sure. And as you mentioned, there are actually three dormant commerce clause arguments that are included here. But the first and clearest type of violation, which which was not applicable here at all, would be if California had actually discriminated against other states in order to protect its own pig farmers. That's probably what people remember what the dormant commerce clause was from law school, if they remember it at all. And that's probably what people are thinking about. And that is just not what's going on here. That wasn't even argued by the pork producers. So uh, as you mentioned, the second more kind of ancillary argument was One of the major subjects of Justice Gorsuch's majority opinion, and this was the argument about extraterritorial regulation. So, can you explain in more detail what that is and how the court dealt with it here?
1: The general proposition is that states have whatever sovereign authority they have, residual to the delegation of national lawmaking power to Congress, with respect to their own citizens and their own territory. So if the minimum drinking age is 18 in one state and 21 in another state, it's 18 or 21 within those states. Now, it happens that they're all now 21 because there's a federal law that incentivizes states to raise their drinking age. But there are all sorts of other examples, right? So the speed limit on the highway in uh, Wyoming is higher than it is in New York State. Wyoming couldn't try to set the speed limit for its drivers when they travel to New York State and vice versa. Lots of examples of that. That's easy. I think everybody understands that at some level, uh, states just lack the power to regulate extraterritorial. What the plaintiffs in this case, the uh, pork industry was saying, was that this is de facto extraterritorial legislation. Because even though California's law applies to pork products based on pigs grown, raised, slaughtered in California, the overwhelming majority of the pig meat comes from out of state. And so in those circumstances, too, the state should be deemed to be regulating extraterritorially. It would be as if uh, California were regulating Iowans for something that happens exclusively in Iowa and that you can't do. And the court rejected it. And I think they were right to reject it because, as Justice Gorsuch says in the lead opinion, and this is a majority opinion on this proposition, he says, lots of in-state laws have extraterritorial effects. That's just obvious in a nation with a national, indeed an international economy, right? So If you have pollution measures, that's going to affect the kinds of products that are sold in your state. If you have laws about bicycle helmets or bells or whatever, and they're not all made in your state, even if most of them are made outside of the state, the law will have its extraterritorial impact. There is no, as Justice Gorsuch says, per se rule against extraterritorial impact. Uh, So I think that's really the key to the rejection of the extraterritoriality claim. It's not that states are permitted to directly enact extraterritorial legislation in the sense of laws that apply simply out of state. It's just that when they're regulating in state for the health, safety, morals of the people in the state, and there's a spillover, that's okay, even if the spillover is very substantial.
0: And I think the court was actually unanimous on that issue. Yes, that's right. But that's because they had a much more confusing argument to fall back on and disagree on. And that's where the case really gets going. And I have a little trouble figuring out where this argument begins and where it ends. And this this argument is known as pike balancing. Pike is of course the name of the case that it's named for. And just briefly, I know it's not something that can be done easily briefly. But can you just tell us a little bit about what gets balanced in a pike analysis?
1: Sure. So let's back up. For a long time, putting aside the extraterritoriality limit, which I don't think of as really about the Dormant Commerce Clause at all. I just think that's inherent in the limited nature of state sovereignty. Putting that aside, we've said, and when I teach the Dormant Commerce Clause to my constitutional law students, I tell them that there are two ways a plaintiff can win a Dormant Commerce Clause case. The easy way is if you can show that a law is spatially discriminatory. So the California only applied its law to out-of-state pork products, or you know, uh, if uh, New York said you can only sell apples in New York if they're grown in New York, that would be easy. The other way you can win is by showing that the law's burden on interstate commerce clearly outweighs the law's in-state benefits. That is what is being balanced. The burden on interstate commerce on the one side against the in-state benefits. But the clearly outweighs language tells us that it's difficult to win one of these Pike balancing claims because the burden is on the plaintiff, not just to show that the balance is a little bit off, but that the out-of-state burdens Clearly outweigh the in state benefits. That is the classic description of pike balancing. Now, what's confusing about this case, I think, is that the plurality, and it's only a plurality on this point, reconceptualizes pike balancing. And what Justice Gorsuch says, not for a majority in this proposition, is that. The cases in the past that have employed pike balancing have said that what they're doing is weighing the out of state burdens against the in state benefits in a kind of balancing method. But what those cases really were about was smoking out discrimination. That when the court has invalidated state laws under pike balancing, it has done so Because it has concluded that the law, while facially neutral, was either intended to be discriminatory or had very substantial discriminatory effects that were known, and that was sort of what the law was about. So it's an effort to re understand or reconceptualize those past cases. He only gets a plurality for that, and part of the reason why he only gets a plurality, I think is because it's not really true as a full description of the prior cases. I think Justice Gorsuch is right that most of the cases where a law fails Pike balancing, it's because the court concluded, hey, this is just disguised discrimination. But there are some cases in which the plaintiff wins, and it's just because of a balancing act done by the court.
0: So do you think this was an attempt by Justice Gorsuch to change the law on pike balancing?
1: I think so. He has not been quite as skeptical of the Dorman Commerce Clause broadly in the way that Justice Clarence Thomas has been. But he's, uh, I would say, sympathetic to the Thomas view, A, that there's no such thing as the Dormant Commerce Clause, And B, that at least if there is, you shouldn't use the balancing test as a plain old balancing test. Uh, Justice Scalia used to take this position as well. So this is a kind of methodological move of the conservatives who don't like balancing tests, or at least they don't like explicit balancing tests. Therefore, I think he was motivated to read the prior Pike balancing cases as not really balancing cases and thereby to move the law by recharacterizing it. Uh, And he got a couple of colleagues to go along with that.
0: And this is the part that gets confusing. The couple of colleagues were Justice Thomas and Justice Barrett. Is that right? To go along with this rationale for saying the plaintiffs don't get to take advantage of Pike.
1: That's correct. He also got, on the result, Justices Sotomayor and Kagan but they agreed only with a different rationale that he offered.
0: Yeah. Before we get to that rationale, I just have a few more questions on the first rationale, because one of the things that I thought was very interesting about it was that in discussing this reasoning, he clearly labeled the issue that's going on here as a moral one.
1: Yes, that's right.
0: And that's kind of very exciting for animal advocates, isn't it?
1: I agree. The opinion throughout expresses not even a smidge of skepticism or snark with respect to California's moral interest in how animals are treated. Uh, Even citing some of the materials that were in the briefs uh, about how historically states and governments have regulated uh, for purposes of animal welfare uh, and treating that issue with real respect. So that, I thought, was a an important step.
0: I was delighted to read that part of it and kind of surprised at the source. But, but I, I think there's been some speculation that there might have been other reasons for emphasizing that this was a moral issue, particularly given the judges who signed on to this particular rationale, Barrett and Thomas, uh, that it might open up discussion in this context of other moral issues, which I might not be as excited to hear discussed seriously. Do you you buy that?
1: Yeah, so obviously you're hinting about abortion.
0: Well, and and not just abortion, though. They have a whole list of things, but abortion obviously is the one at the front of most people's minds.
1: Well, and abortion is the one in which I think there is a substantial worry about states regulating conduct outside of their state, especially two things one is people traveling to other states where abortion is available to have abortions outside the state and two receiving mifepristone and other pills or devices that can be used for abortion through the mail in ways that would violate states laws right so even putting aside this recent ruling that's currently on hold by Judge Matthew Kasmerick in the Texas Dist- Federal District Court, there's a worry that states will apply their abortion bans, of which there are now a great many, to abortion pills and say you can't receive pills uh, coming from other states. And one could easily say that, well, if the state has a moral interest in keeping out pork because the state's uh, voters think that pork raised under certain conditions is immoral, they also have a moral interest in keeping out abortion pills. So I do think that that is a potential here. Uh, It was something I worried about a lot and wrote a column on before the oral argument. Uh, I was somewhat assuaged by the oral argument. And so my column after the oral argument and when we spoke last time about the case downplayed that risk. But it's still a possibility, I think. I should say, though, that although Clarence Thomas and Amy Coney Barrett join the part of the opinion that does away entirely with Pike balancing, I don't think that that particular issue is especially salient with respect to abortion or other exercises of the state's moral power, because one could imagine that if a court wanted to uphold some socially conservative exercise of the of its power via morality, it could do that whether or not it's possible to challenge it as violating the balance or just, you know, on some other grounds. So I, I guess another way of saying that is I believe when the court has issues before it that trigger sort of hot button social questions, they will vote their ideological druthers regardless <laughs> of what's been said in other cases.
0: So we don't even have to listen to the rest of this interview because they'll just do what they want. That's basically what you're saying.
1: <laughs> well, when the... when. When the ideological stakes are high enough, Mm -hmm. I think that tends to swamp. Yeah, that that swamps the sort of more lawyerly arguments about how this case is more like that case and vice versa.
0: Yeah, yeah, (laughs) I hear you, and I think a lot of people do too. But getting back to actually what they said in the case, because that is, you know, we're lawyers, and that's what we at least pretend to do. One of his major reasons for saying that that moral issues. Could win here was that courts can't weigh disparate issues like morals against against the welfare of the poor and, and like they're so different that they can't be weighed with each other. Most of the other judges seem to think that was nonsense, and it sounded like nonsense to me too. Do you think that's nonsense?
1: I do. I didn't used to. So Gorsuch cites and uh, quotes a line that Justice Scalia had many years ago in a dormant commerce clause case. Uh, that I always thought was very clever, in which Scalia says, "Well, we talk about balancing, but balancing isn't really the right metaphor because the quantities you're balancing are incommensurate." So he says it's a little bit like asking whether a particular line is longer than a particular rock is heavy. So, you know, they're not the same thing. How can you put those on the opposite sides of the scale? And I used to think that was a, a reasonable move, but once I saw all of the justices, other than the three, you know, other Gorsuch, Thomas, and Barrett, saying, wait a second, we balance stuff all the time, even if they're incommensurate. I started thinking more deeply about it. And I came to conclude it's not necessarily nonsense, but I, I don't think it carries you very far. Uh, that is to say, the, the whole nature of balancing, in some sense, is about measuring incommensurate quantities against one another. After all, if you were just measuring things that were measured identically, You wouldn't need a judge to do that. You would say, "Well, you know, twelve is more than seven, or or whatever the things are. Uh, You know, if if more money is better than less money, you can count up the money on each side. It's only when you're weighing things that are, in some sense, on different scales because they are of different amounts that you need a kind of judgment. And so, in a column which you can link on the show notes if you want, I say that even the line and the rock point doesn't carry you very far. So if you were, if you had like, you know, a line that goes from, you know, the center of the earth to the center of the sun, I think you could say that line is longer than a pebble is heavy, <laughs> uh, right, right? And conversely, if uh, the the rock, you know, is like the largest asteroid, which is, you know, measured in gazillions of kilograms and the line is, you know, the the length of, you know, from one end of the head of a pin to the other, you could say that the rock is heavier because we have a kind of scale for measuring these things in terms of ordinary objects. And I think that's what the metaphor of balancing, when we look at the scales of justice, is supposed to capture, right? That yes, there's an element of subjective judgment. That's why we need courts, why we don't have computers deciding cases. But we have to measure and commensurate all the time. In fact, we do it in daily life. You know, if you and I are trying to decide what restaurant to go to for lunch, and I really want to try some New vegan pizza places. You've kidded me about repeatedly, <laughs> and, and you say, "Well, that's not very healthy, Mike. Why don't we? Why don't we go get the go to the place where they have the the kale salad? We're going to this is weigh... actually a
0: conversation that we have. Wait,
1: <laughs> <laughs> yes, right. We're we're going to weigh health, taste, friendship, all sorts of things that are uh, uh, you know arguably incommensurate, but we have to make a decision.
0: Yeah, that's really true, and Actually, a lot of the other decisions in the case pointed out that we, we weigh incommensurate burdens all the time, like, come on, uh, except for Amy Cody Barrett, who totally bought this argument and actually, just as we're keeping score here, did not sign on to Gorsuch's other argument, which we will get to next. So he had the three of them, well... Gorsuch Thomas and Amy Cody Barrett for his first argument, which the rest of the court gave short shrift to. But then he has his second argument for why Pike balancing doesn't get the plaintiffs any, anywhere here. And there he was joined just to preview it by Justice Thomas, Justice Sotomayor and Justice Kagan. Though Justice Sotomayor wrote separately, but she agreed with the outcome. I don't like this is so confusing. I. It seems like there's a majority for an outcome, but there's no majority for why we got to that outcome. And I guess that happens with the court, but, you know, I don't have, I don't follow it closely enough to ever run into that. But let's get to that second rationale, because that's the one really, there were at least four judges on this one, and I think more important than the one where, where there were three judges. So what is the second rationale for why Justice Gorsuch felt that Pike did not get the plaintiffs anywhere in this case?
1: So here the idea is that even if you accept that Pike is a weighing of the burden on interstate commerce versus the in-state benefits, that the kinds and nature of the burden that the industry had identified just doesn't count for anything. It's not a substantial burden, even though, yes, it's going to cost them a lot to comply with it. But. That's always true if you want to sell your products you have to you make a choice do you want to sell to this market or not and so he says this is not a case in which california is telling anybody they have to do anything that's super expensive it's simply california regulating in state and these external impacts which are somewhat speculative after all there are other uh I, I hate to use the term but right other producers right of the, that say they can comply it's just sort of allocating as among different firms in the marketplace and that's not the kind of burden that gets you over the hump for one of these cases interestingly he's not even saying that here that the state's moral interest outweighs their uh concern he's saying the burden isn't enough even to get you to a trial at which you're going to weigh the burden on interstate commerce as against the state's interest in promoting the the morals of, of its people who don't want cruelty to animals.
0: This is the part where I really feel, unless I'm missing something, this plurality—it's not a majority because they lost Barrett—but this plurality and the dissents are just talking a different language. Maybe I just don't get the nuance, but Gorsuch seems, and and Sotomayor, in her opinion, seem to be saying that interfering with these companies' ability to do business in California, to make money in California, is not interfering with interstate commerce. And And the dissents, particularly Justice Kavanaugh's, seem to say exactly the opposite. Kavanaugh actually says the pork industry can't afford to stop doing business with California because California is so profitable for them. That just seems to be not defending interstate commerce. It seems to be defending the pork industry. Do you see a nuance here that I'm missing? Or or are they really on different pages here and not really explaining to us why?
1: I think they are. I I think the probably the best way to make sense of what Gorsuch is doing here. Although, if he, if, he, if what I'm about to say is true, he seems to have hoodwinked uh, Sotomayor and Kagan. But I, I think it's that he is sort of smuggling in his anti-balancing view into the part of his opinion where he's even accepting the idea, uh, for argument's sake, that you do balancing. Because really, and I have to say, If you're going to do balancing, I would say that California wins, but it's not entirely clear to me that Kavanaugh and Roberts and the others are wrong, that there is a burden here. It's true. The burden is only if you want to do business in California, but of course, that's sort of the nature of a burden on interstate commerce, right? It's you're going to burden the ability of an out-of-state business to do business in your state. So, although I agree with the bottom line, and I think California wins, it's not its not entirely clear to me how Gorsuch gets to the proposition that there isn't a burden on your state commerce without thinking that, well, it's just not that he wants to weigh that burden as against the in-state benefit. So, maybe they're talking past each other, but it could, you know, Gorsuch's wrong or doing something a little different from what he says he's doing.
0: So for those who aren't listening to this because they care about animals, because they care about the dignity of the Dormant Commerce Clause, <laughs> do you do you think this case is going to have a big impact on no. how it's interpreted? <laughs> no. Because <laughs> nobody can figure out who held what?
1: <laughs> it, it's not just that it's hard to figure out who did what. There are other contexts in which – the Supreme Court divides so that at least on some or sometimes all of the issues, there's no majority opinion. Here, there's a majority for the bottom line, so that's something. There's a famous case called United States Against Marks, M-A-R-K-S, that says that when the court divides in this way such that there's only a partial majority or no majority, but a plurality. It's the job of the lower courts to try to piece together the propositions on which there were at least five votes, and that's the law for them. Okay. But the precedential value in the Supreme Court itself, going forward, of one of these divided opinions is less than the precedential value of a case in which there's a full-on majority opinion. And therefore, it seems to me in future cases, this decision will not stand for the proposition that only Gorsuch, Barrett, and Thomas signed on to, namely that there is no Pike balancing except as a way to measure discrimination. And it also May or may not, probably won't stand for the proposition that these burdens, where you know what you're unable to do is do business in a particular state, don't count. I think it largely leaves the law where it was before, which is that pike balancing claims are still available, but they're very hard to win.
0: Okay. And I still don't really understand them. But you know, many things leave me, especially from the Supreme Court, leave me with that conclusion. I would like to talk a little bit about the dissents, especially since what you're saying, like the majorities didn't decide anything. So we might as well look at what are the other judges are thinking. And so Roberts, who was joined by Alito, who did not carry out your prediction that he might do something good for animals. So cross him off. Kavanaugh and Jackson, uh, which you did predict might be disappointing and indeed was, they want to send it back. I mean, they're not like saying the pork industry wins, but they think that the balancing question, the pike balancing question should go back. And one of the things I found interesting, at least from an animal point of view, is that among the allegations that that Roberts talked about, who has the best of the balancing argument vis-a-vis some pork industry behavior of whether it's best for pigs, for tradition, also for like these social questions, I think Gorsuch calls them. I mean, aside from the fact that it's ridiculous to even raise the question of whether gestation crates are good for pigs, like, come on. Why are these questions being raised at this point? Didn't the people of California decide that they think that this is what's best for pigs? On a dormant commerce clause argument, does the court really get to decide the whole thing all over again?
1: Well, I think what you, you're you suggesting is that maybe there is more to Gorsuch's and Scalia's idea that the values are, if not necessarily incommensurate, inappropriate for judges to reweigh, right? There is a factual question, right? That is to say, you could imagine, at least in a different case, that a state defended an animal welfare law in part on health grounds, right? So suppose they said that the meat from pigs whose mothers are kept in gestation crates is uh, less healthy in the following ways, and it listed a bunch of ways. Well, those are factual claims, which might or might not be true. And you could, again, imagine that if there's a very serious economic effect on the industry, that if they could prove that actually these claims are factually false, then that would subtract the state's health interest from the other side of the balance. And I agree that that then is very hard to weigh. But you could imagine even on that, they'd say, well, how do we define animal welfare? Not everything the voters say is good for pigs is necessarily good for pigs, right? So the, Mm -hmm. the defenders of gestation crates and confinement in general Point to things like, well, there's a risk of aggression from other animals, which of course is entirely a byproduct of the fact that if you don't, if you tell them they can't keep the animals in gestation crates or the battery cages for hens, it's not as if they give them lots of land. They confine them just in in a much bigger area with way too many animals too close to each other, right? But then, of course, if you say, well, then you have to give them actually the kind of room that they might need. Then they will say, well, that's prohibitively expensive and so forth. So there's all of this is in the context of an industry that's trying to squeeze as much profit as possible out of each particular animal. But I think that Roberts and the other, I'll call them dissenters, but they're not really dissenters on this point. I I think their idea is, well, if there's balancing, we get to look at least at the factual claims that underlie California's asserted interest here.
0: Yeah, it's a little troubling how much the Supreme Court would be, is, can be in charge of under the commerce clause. Uh, now that we're talking about it, I'm, I'm starting to see Gorsuch's point, which is what always happens when you start talking about a case. Like, oh, that's what he meant. All right, Kavanaugh, unless you have anything more to say about uh, Justice Roberts' dissent. I'd like to talk about Kavanaugh, because to me, he was the one who just completely drank the pork industry's Kool-Aid. Like, you know, what's good for the pork industry is good for America.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, so the to, to me, the most objectionable part about Kavanaugh's separate opinion, which the good news is it was he only spoke for himself. He acknowledges that California asserts a moral interest, but he doesn't seem to give it any credit. And He asserts, you know, that well, he talks about all the jobs that will be lost in the pork industry as though, you know, Californians whose demand for pork goes down doesn't either shift those jobs to other workers in the pork industry or, you know, God forbid, to people in jobs creating foods that are not made from animals.
0: Right. Presumably, Californians will continue to eat.
1: Right. Uh, but but this is a very common move from people who want to resist any sort of regulatory effort is to say, well, there are all these people who are employed in this industry that you now want to change. And it's like, well, that's true. And maybe there will be some transition costs, but that's sort of always true. And, and by the way, of course, as we know, these are not great jobs. The, <laughs> to the, say work, the, least. the workers in the slaughterhouses uh, suffer an enormous physical and emotional toll. They have probably the highest turnover in, of almost any industry uh, in the country. The workers on the farms are often undocumented, low paid. So yes, there are many people employed by this industry, but A, those people could be employed in other industries and B, quite Probably uh, in better jobs.
0: Yeah, I mean, and the latest news out of the uh, out of the slaughterhouses that they're hiring thirteen and fourteen year olds to clean them at night. Presumably, people are not knocking down their doors to get these jobs. Right. So, capital also provides some examples. So you you went through a hypothetical before, as you are wont to do. He gives some this parade of horribles, of things that are going to happen because of this case. Do you mind going through some of these and seeing what you think? What if a state law prohibits the sale of fruit picked by non-citizens who are unlawfully in the country? One can imagine states that would do that.
1: Yeah. So this is basically right out of the brief and the oral argument of the pork industry, which warned about so-called balkanization if the court were to uphold this law. And we, you and I talked about this a little bit uh, after the oral argument. Uh, the question is, can you distinguish the meat from other kinds of products with respect to how those other kinds of products developed? And, and I guess I would say two things. One is, as we talked about before, the relation between the treatment of the pigs And the meat derived from the bodies of those pigs or the pigs who were the piglets uh, whose mothers were raised in horrific conditions is quite direct, whereas there seems to be at least one additional sort of logical step, that is to say, when you eat the fruit picked by an undocumented worker or a worker paid below a certain threshold wage, you're not eating the worker. Right, You're eating the fruit that they picked. That's not to say it doesn't have an impact, but there it would look more like California or whatever state was imposing the law. If it's a if it's a rule that has sort of a regressive effects, let's say Texas or Florida, right? whichever state is imposing it really does seem to be trying to leverage the happenstance of the products being sold in its state as a means of Regulating labor practices or whatever it is in some other state, so it does look like a kind of pretext for extraterritorial regulation in a way that I just don't think is true. When Californians say we don't want to eat meat that has a cruelty built into it, so that's the the first way that I think you can distinguish those cases. Although, you know, again, uh, for every distinction, there's some counter distinction.
0: I do have another point on this particular question. That is a really valid way to me to distinguish these situations. And I won't go through all of the things you went on about because they were very similar. But another thought that occurred to me, and so you can correct me if I've got this wrong, this was also kind of a political situation, like these extreme positions in state legislatures that are really going to hurt people who now are not going to be able to get fruit and are going to pay more for fruit might become a little less likely for these uh, extremist positions because they might be very, very unpopular and they wouldn't have the dormant commerce clause to kind of protect them from doing this. Or it might even force Congress to get its act together because, as you've pointed out, Congress can take care of anything here, right?
1: Yes, right. The, the dormant commerce clause is uh, a reference to the fact that the power lies sleeping. Congress has not exercised its affirmative power under the commerce clause. If Congress wanted to regulate more than it does, which is minimally through the Animal Welfare Act, the treatment of breeding sows or pigs and the resulting meat products, it could do so. And the law that it enacts could be given preemptive effect, that is to say displacing effect, with respect to any contrary state laws. So that all we're ever talking about when a court is deciding a dormant commerce clause case is a kind of default rule. What is the rule, either allow or disallow the state legislation, in the absence of congressional action? It's a pretty powerful point. The other point to which you were alluding, I think, is, again, something we talked about last time, which is that consumers in a state are a pretty good proxy for producers outside of the state, so that if there's a proposal to impose regulations on the sale of some product that really will raise the cost dramatically, uh, then consumer groups in the state will lobby the legislature or individual legislators will find that their constituents are very unhappy. And that's going to act against the pressure uh, for the regulation.
0: Yeah. And they're not going to have a situation as they do here where there's going to be a ballot initiative to prohibit this this fruit from being imported into into whatever state. That a legislature probably wouldn't have done this.
1: Right. Well, you could imagine there being such a ballot initiative, right? I mean, California is notorious for its ballot initiative. So imagine that uh, there is a ballot initiative to forbid the sale in state of uh, fruit picked by workers who are paid less than such and such a minimum wage or whatever. It is. So it's not crazy to assume that this could happen, right? That is to say, the, the balkanization fear is, I think, not completely made up. On the other hand, you know, the republic has been around for a long time. Um, Most of these measures, it's true, the the ones that they've identified have sort of what we might think of as political ideological valence, but they also are economically salient. And um, it's just not the kind of thing that I think is going to get through uh, very easily.
0: Animals are a different question, and I'm glad to hear it. There does seem to be something different. All right, Kavanaugh, getting back to Kavanaugh, because he doesn't stop there. He says, all right, forget the Commerce Clause. What about the Import-Export Clause, the Privileges and Immunities Clause, the Full Faith and Credit Clause? He actually seems to suggest that the pork industry bring this case again and make different arguments. I mean, he actually seems to suggest that. I have some quote here if I can find it. it. It appears, therefore, that properly pled dormant commerce clause challenges under Pike to laws like California's Proposition 12, or even to Proposition 12 itself, could could succeed in the future. And then he also says it may raise. Questions under different parts of the Constitution. So I won't ask you to go through every clause of the Constitution to see if there's a way forward, but are they planning to litigate this over and over? Is there another possible argument that you think has legs? Is race judicata not a thing here?
1: Well, so two things. So, first, I'm glad you asked about race judicata, right? The NPPC, right, the National Pork Producers Council, which is the plaintiff in this case, and there's some other plaintiffs, are probably precluded by claim preclusion from now reasserting the same claims as privileges or immunities claims or import-export claims, because those arise out of the same nucleus of operative fact, as the relevant cases say. But, as listeners will recall from law school, right claim and issue preclusion only apply as against parties and their privities. And so you could imagine Some other entity, whether it's a pork producer or a farm or a distributor or whatever, who's not bound by this judgment because they weren't a party to it, bringing a new claim under some other constitutional provision. And I take it the reason Kavanaugh is saying this is because he knows that Justice Thomas, and to to some extent maybe Gorsuch is sympathetic to this, said, well... Uh, you know, you could get a lot of this out of the import-export clause potentially. Although I think Thomas even then has limited that to the anti-discrimination principle. I don't read him, at least in the prior statements, as suggesting you would just, you know, that that his objection is simply to the fact that all of this is done under the wrong clause. Uh, he's sort of notorious for doing this. He he did this in an important uh, Second Amendment case in which he said that he doesn't think that the 14th Amendment uh, due process clause properly incorporates the Bill of Rights, but maybe you get most of the same juice out of the privileges or immunities clause of the 14th Amendment. Not to be confused with the privileges and immunities clause of (laughs) Article 4, which is the provision that governs uh, state versus state interactions.
0: I'm really glad you said that, because I certainly was confused about that. I had no idea it was an and and or choice in in privileges and immunities. The
1: the reason one is an or and the other is an and is the one in the 14th Amendment is phrased in the negative, and so you said, so not or is the same as and, but but with the contrapositive.
0: Okay. All right. Well, lots to look forward to here. I just have a few overall questions, and one is just the individual justices, uh, You know, you made some predictions. Any any surprises?
1: Yeah, again, the the lead opinion is, I think, a pleasant surprise. uh, In that, I hadn't previously thought of Gorsuch as sympathetic to animals. Um, I had no reason to think he wasn't, especially although he does have a kind of Western orientation. Tends to, you know, people of that ilk tend to be sympathetic to hunting, ranching, etc. So, in the same way that I was pleasantly surprised when Justice O'Connor signed on to Justice Blackman's partial concurrence, partial dissent in the Church of Lukumi case, which recognized a state interest in forbidding cruelty to animals during slaughter, notwithstanding the fact that she too had a kind of rancher background, I was pleasantly surprised to see Justice Gorsuch uh, writing an opinion that took the state's moral interest in animal welfare seriously. You mentioned Justice Alito. The reason I had some hope for him was because he was the lone dissenter from the court's case in the Stevens decision, uh, where the court, by, by an 8 to 1 vote, held that the law forbidding crush videos and other depictions of animal cruelty was unconstitutionally overbroad, and he wrote a dissent that was you know, sympathetic to the interest in protecting animals. The Robert's opinion that he joins in this most recent case is not especially hostile to the animal welfare interest, but it doesn't sort of ringingly endorse it, and so Alito just goes along with that. From the oral argument, I didn't think that Justice Jackson was especially, you know, sympathetic to animals. I've never thought that about either Justice Kagan uh, or Justice Sotomayor, so I'm not really disappointed in most of them, but that's because I had pretty low expectations.
0: (laughs) Isn't that true of so much in life? (laughs) Uh, But you do think that the actual subject matter of animals had something to do with the outcome of the individual justices' decisions. You don't think they were just stand-ins for other ideological positions, you know, basically Republican, either the ideologues or the big business supporters. And you could see them sort of the animals just as stand-ins for other ideas of, oh, moral interests must win or big business must win. You actually think the subject matter entered into the thought process is here.
1: I think that for two reasons. First is the fact that the opinion doesn't simply say, well, the state has asserted a moral interest in the way that the state might assert a moral interest in, you know, forbidding nude dancing, as some cases in the uh, 1980s involved, uh, and then just say, well, they've asserted a moral interest, that's the end of the, the, the matter. Gorsuch's opinion describes the moral interest, both through history and through the current practices, in ways that are sympathetic. The second reason I don't think it's just a stand-in is the lineup doesn't make any sense if it's just a stand-in for ideological uh, reasons, right? The court splits, right? You can, I think you can identify sort of three groups, right? It's Gorsuch, Thomas, Sotomayor, and Kagan, Gorsuch, Thomas, and Barrett, and then Roberts, Alito, Kavanaugh, and Jackson. And that's the, none of those alignments is necessarily left-right ideological.
0: Yeah. And I think it led to a lot of the confusion about, you know, things I've seen written in the press that people have a lot of trouble figuring this one out, as do I. You mentioned that Gorsuch's opinion didn't just skate over animal welfare, really talked about it. Is this the best thing that's ever come out of the Supreme Court vis of vis animals?
1: The best thing? Oh, I don't know about that. I mean, what What were the, maybe, better, but if so, it's only through, you know, The process of elimination. I don't know what the alternatives would be. (laughs) Maybe Missouri against Holland, indirectly. Missouri against Holland, you'll recall, is the case from the early 20th century in which the court upholds the Migratory Bird Act that forbids the shooting down of certain migratory birds. And Justice Holmes refers to the birds as the protectors of our crops because they eat insects. But, you know, that, that wasn't, I think that was just a flourish. Yeah. I don't know. What, what what are the other candidates? I There's
0: not a lot. There's not a lot. I think it's a step forward. I do.
1: Yeah, I think that's right.
0: That he chose to write seriously about the issue. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a step backwards that, that Kavanaugh just Kavanaughed himself to death here. All right. I'm going to give you a quote from Congresswoman Tracy Mann, who is a Republican from Kansas and is the chair of the House Agriculture Subcommittee on Livestock, Dairy, and Poultry, so we can all imagine. This decision opens the door to the unthinkable. Today, it's the pig pen. Tomorrow, it's the whole barnyard. Any predictions? Do you think she's right? Will there be next steps? Will this lead to more legislation limiting what can be done to animals?
1: Yeah. So it already has. Prop 12, as we talked about at the top of the show, is not only about uh, pigs. It's also about layer hens and veal calves. You know, one of the remarkable things is when you ask people in polls and apparently even in referenda what they think about animals and how they should be exploited, they express views that are remarkably sympathetic to the goals of animal welfare and even animal rights. That doesn't always show up, in fact, it usually doesn't show up, in their individual consumption choices. But you could understand that as a kind of recognition that they don't live up to their ideals. And so, you know, maybe, you know, she is right that eventually it would be the whole barnyard, and that would be great. I should say you should you you and Jasmine should save that quote for Rising Anxiety's uh, piece on Our Hen House.
0: Good idea. It certainly put my anxiety somewhat to rest from her lips. Do you think that there might be next steps, next legislative steps? And of course, Massachusetts has already passed similar legislation and that's just on hold until this case gets decided. So presumably, and it's not on hold anymore. What about the pork industry? What's their next step? Do you think they'll go to Congress again? I just want to point out one thing, which I'll save you from pointing out Gorsuch mentioned it, that in the past, the pig industry has tried to get Congress to weigh in on this. And now you would think reading this, that the pork industry had tried to get standards set by Congress about how animals should be raised. But that, of course, was not the case. They just tried to get the the implications of the Dormant Commerce Clause eliminated and just say that states can't prohibit the sale of goods based on how the animals were treated if they were in another state. They tried that many times. It was known as the King Amendment for uh, Steve King. I guess his name was Steve King. Yeah. You know, who's departed now because of various scandals, Me Too scandals. And they tried it over and over and failed. Do you think they will revisit that? Do you think they actually will go to Congress and say, maybe we should get some universal standards, nationwide standards set for how pigs are raised? Uh, Seems unlikely. They fought that in the past. What do you predict?
1: I think they will try. My guess is they're trying even as we speak. (laughs) That is, you know, one of the, the, you know, I generally as a, not, not wearing my animal rights hat, I generally think that Congress has broad power under the Commerce Clause to pass laws that preempt state regulation, but I know that often when Congress does that, it is in response to industry pressure, whether it's the animal agriculture industry, pharmaceutical industry, whatever it is, to set a national standard that is very low and then have that not be the floor, but the stealing for what states can do so that you have what's sometimes called field preemption. That means the states can't even regulate beyond what the feds require. You know, we know that there are efforts along all sorts of dimensions to have Congress step in to create national legislation that undercuts and will rights, animal welfare. I mean, think about the efforts to enact the Dairy Pride Act. Unfortunately, these efforts are frequently bipartisan because there are a lot of the states that have large agricultural industries and we think of as, you know, blue or progressive states, the senators and representatives from those states represent their constituents. You and I both live in central New York, where the dairy industry is big and has a lot of political power that goes with its economic clout, and you know members of Congress are responsive to that. So I, I guess what I'm what I'm saying is that they will try, and they will probably have some success. You know, the only thing to do in response is to point out all the ways in which this will be terrible.
0: I imagine some sort of fight will be on. Uh, There will be next steps. And I think the animal rights movement, I hope, is more ready for it than it ever has been before. That doesn't mean (laughs) it's a winner, but more ready for it than it has before. And I think public sentiment has shifted to some extent. So, yeah, the fight is on. We better get ready for it.
1: Yeah, I'll I'll say one other thing, which is sort of a mixed blessing, which is as you saw from the briefs in this case – there are elements of the animal agriculture industry, including a lot of the, you know, the egg sellers, um, who are on the other side. That is to say, who are, it's not just that they are okay with measures like Prop 12. They affirmatively like them. And this is something you see across regulated industries, that often the actors who are already able to meet the Higher standards want the government to impose those standards on everybody because they have a competitive advantage. Then, because uh, their competitors aren't yet able to do that, and so they take a bigger share of the market. So, you know, ironically, what might end up undercutting efforts to set a sort of national ceiling at a very low level could be the sort of counter efforts of other elements of the animal agriculture industry. And, you know, that's both to be appreciated, but also sobering, because it means that the reform you're getting is only going to go as far as the most sophisticated actors in the industry are uh, prepared to go.
0: Yeah, really, really important heads up and a reminder that legislation is not going to fix the lives of animals. It might, might as I always say, move them from a lower circle of hell to a higher circle of hell, but legislatures are not going to get them out of hell. That's for sure. That's up to us. Anything else you wanted to add before I let you go?
1: No, that seems like an appropriately dismal note in which to end, but I, but, but, <laughs> no, try. I will say, try. Right, no, the, I, I try to be optimistic and I I do think there are some some reasons to feel good about certainly the rhetoric of this opinion and maybe its impact to some extent.
0: Yeah, I, I, I agree. There's some reasons to feel good here. So thank you so much for doing this. It's really helped me tremendously in getting a little closer to understand what's going on here.
1: My pleasure. It's rare that I get to talk about animals with my interest in the Supreme Court. So it's a pleasure to come along.
0: Thank you so much for joining us on the Animal Law Podcast. We will be back next month with a new show. Thank you so much to Michael Dorr for taking the time to clarify this case. And also thank you to Vicki Beechler, Andrew Gelfand, and Eric Montgomery of Podcast Haven for their help in producing the podcast. If you are not already subscribed, please consider doing so wherever you listen to podcasts. Consider leaving us a good review there or on Apple Podcasts. And if you are able, please consider making a tax-deductible donation at OurHenHouse.org. Thank you so much for tuning in.